0: we're live. Mackenzie, thank you for joining me today.
1: My pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. Would you like to introduce yourself to the listeners?
1: Uh, sure. I'm Mackenzie Amara. I'm um, a union analyst in training at the International School of Analytical Psychology in Zurich. I'm a five rhythms teacher and a clinical psych doctoral student working on a Dissertation about integration of psychedelic experiences through dream space.
0: That's awesome. That's definitely what I want to get into today um, is the molding of psychology and psychedelics. Um, Before we touch on that, I'm curious, what led you down the path to becoming a psychologist?
1: Um, Yeah. I had a unique upbringing. I was raised in a commune. and it was a very like psychology forward commune. We had a lot of interpersonal um, teachings, I guess, Uh, how to deal with others, how to navigate self-awareness, how to become self-aware, how to communicate effectively, how to deal with things like money, power, sex consciously. And I think that kind of primed me And then in my teens, I started taking psychedelics uh, for spiritual purposes. I was really interested in enlightenment and I had a psychedelic-induced psychotic break when I was 18 years old um, and was experiencing symptoms of schizophrenia for about two and a half years, uh, during which time I discovered Five Rhythms Dance and Carl Jung. uh, And the combination of those things kind of helped me piece my psyche back together um in which time i discovered that psychology is incredible <laughs> and um and it wasn't until much later that i took steps in to actually become a Jungian analyst that that was not really ever in the in the cards in my mind as a 20 something um, and it was in the process of going through training to become an analyst that that I kind of realized the relationship between depth psychology and psychedelic experience, and then it sort of became this like, oh wow, here's a lot of a lot of my own experience and a lot of what is what I found to be most meaningful in the world, kind of represented in in one overlapping Venn diagram and, um, yeah, that became a very obvious choice for me. But but I would say the path, the path has been sort of piecemeal.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I always think it's funny, uh, anyone I've ever talked to about any topics like this, it's always a search to answer what has happened to themselves, not just a general interest. Um, I always find that to be pretty fascinating. Anyone on this journey is always trying to start with themselves, and then venturing out to proliferate that knowledge or information. Um, that's awesome that you grew up on a commune. I'm sure that, that was a super uh, unique and special special childhood. Um, would you ever live on a commune again after experiencing that?
1: Uh, probably um, under the right circumstances, yeah. Yeah, I think there's something very healing about, about close relationships and kind of being human together.
0: Yep, yeah. Absolutely. That's one of my goals in the future is to buy a lot of land and uh build a homestead and then open it up to any of my friends and family to come out and grow food with me and hang out and just be one with nature as much as we can, you know. Um, that's fascinating. So I'm curious how has the evolution of psychedelics changed since you initially got into the field? Because I definitely feel like we're going through a psychedelic and conscious renaissance right now. Um, and I'm curious what the academic stance on it is, if it's changing or if it's still sort of like that older, you know, seventies eighties generation where they're trying to shut down research into that.
1: Hmm. I, I certainly don't see that. I I, I don't see um, prohibition right now. That doesn't mean that it's not an option in the future. Of hmm. course. Um, I think when I when I started taking psychedelics as a young person, um, there certainly was not a lot of research. Of course, there was the research that was done in the 60s, but there was a huge counterculture around it. So I remember, I mean, even in high school, we were reading Tikal and Pikal and obsessed with Sasha Shulgin and, and, um, and there was this this yeah this very intense kind of countercultural movement maybe tainted by by terence mckenna or inspired depending on who, who you talk to um <laughs> uh and and just this sort of idea of like free your mind um and and break free from the normative dominant dominant culture and i still see that um in pockets but i certainly don't see that in academia i think Um, if anything, psychedelics have become very, very trendy, which I'm grateful for and also terrified about. Um, (laughs) And, and yeah, I mean, even 10 years ago, I was attending psychedelic conferences as a participant, but I, I wouldn't have been able to go to a professor and say, I want to write a research paper on psychedelics without there being a lot of questions and a lot of are you sure and raised eyebrows and um that's very much not the case now there there has nobody's even like thought twice about what I'm doing and I'm and you know right now I live in Zurich and I'm in this Jungian community here and a lot of uh the analysts at my school at my training institute are elders you know they're they're in their 60s and 70s and 80s even and I still do I am met with with resistance and raised eyebrows from that community, but it comes from, I think, kind of the their generation's experience with psychedelics was very much this countercultural revolutionary and then bordering on psychotic um, group of people, like mass of, of hippies right? And so when I come forward and I say, no, 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 like there's, there's science and it's grounded in research. And these experiences are very similar to the experiences that, that we're reading about and, and learning about with Jung and, and his process of active imagination was in, insanely psychedelic, right? Um, there's, there's still a little bit of a, a disconnect, um, which I think is mostly based in legitimate fear of what can happen to one's psyche under the influence of psychedelics. So I am seeing a bit of kind of the old guard um, here. and I'm and I'm grateful for it, honestly, it feels it feels grounding. Um, like I can't just be a young naive enthusiast. I have to actually like consider and and measure my words and and take it seriously.
0: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm a huge psychonaut. I love psychedelics, mushrooms, LSD, all of it. I've had probably over a hundred trips since I was probably like 16, 17 when I started. Um, And I've never had a bad trip. I've always been super aware of my set and setting. And whenever I've had darker aspects come up, I just try to stop what I'm doing and sit with that. And I think that that's been really beneficial But your story and what I've seen with other people is that people can have serious, serious negative side effects from doing psychedelics. And I'm always cautious to tell people to go and just take a heroic dose of mushrooms without any sort of backing for it. Um, And I think that that's a negative aspect of sort of like the psychedelic renaissance going on right now is that. People have the desire and the willingness to take these substances, but not necessarily the knowledge or the preparation to actually understand what's going on and then be able to integrate what they are told on that journey and then how they feel afterwards. Um, And that's something that on my personal journey, finding Carl Jung and also doing psychedelics, like I have a deep seated interest in it already, but then also seeing the the molding of of psychology and of psychedelics as being a path forward that could seriously have real implications on the consciousness and the way forward for human beings um, as this continues to become sought after and then clinically researched.
1: For sure, and I mean, I will say that, like, while the popularity of psychedelics and kind of the the cultural moment that they're having does mean that more people are going to use that as a permission slip to be reckless. Like if I had had even half of the elders and, and frameworks that we have now that are public knowledge, when I started, I probably would not have gone as nuts as I did. Um, and yeah, I think that that's actually a huge benefit to not, not psychedelic popularity, but, but there being so much grounded research now and so many people that understand what we're fucking with. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I wish to God that, that nobody has to break the way that I broke or the way that I've seen some other people break um, in their enthusiasm of psychedelics. And I don't think that if I was 16 years old now and started taking them now, I don't think that I would have had the same experiences because I would have understood, yeah, set and setting. And I would have understood that this is a healing journey, not an enlightenment journey. And, and that's not to say that psychedelics cannot bring you to states of enlightenment, but that is not the goal. Um, and And if one tries to bypass the healing work and doing the, the, the dark and painful shit of looking at where you're wounded, you if you try and bypass that you're, you're trying, I mean, you're building a house on a cracked foundation. There's, there's no stability. Um, and I, and I think that that's much more present now that that awareness. So people, while they may be excited to go deep and far, um, you know, there's, there's more awareness of what deep and far really mean. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have that. And, and all of my friends, you know, in high school and even, even the adults in my life were, were psychonautically inclined and we researched, we knew what we were doing. We knew what a chemical, what the chemical compounds were and how they interacted and what the effect on our brain was going to be. And we read trip reports like crazy. I mean, I had Airwood bookmarked on my, on my browser. Um, but that, wasn't enough because we didn't understand why we were doing it and i think that people now understand oh this is healing like this is this is to connect to something larger than me and be healed by that presence
0: absolutely what do you see the involvement of ritualistic practices with the future of psychedelics being whether or not you see it as the way forward is incorporating actual rituals around these substances or just having the proliferation of knowledge and then the widespread access of them
1: um i think it's kind of both and i think for a lot of people that were raised in the west the ritual can feel alienating um and it can feel Unnecessary and like too much, and and it becomes a reason not to. I hear that from a lot of people that they don't want to participate in ayahuasca ceremonies, for example, because they don't identify with the culture, which is very fair and valid. And and you know now there's research going on at the University of Zurich um, with pharmayahuasca, like a, a an ayahuasca analog um, that's pharmacologically deriv- derived, and part of the administration of that is in a non-ritualistic setting. Um, It's in a more therapeutic setting with with your one or two attendants and, and the music and the eye shades and that kind of classic medical model. And that is a much lower bar of entry, I think, for folks. So if our goal here is to disseminate the wisdom and teachings of these chemicals and of these plants, then the ritual's not necessary. That being said, um, in my experience, all substances contain like an ancestral lineage just baked right into their DNA, like everything does, right? So some plants in particular really yearn for a ritual setting. I've, I've done mushrooms more casually, and I've done mushrooms more ritualistically, for example, and I always sense that the mushrooms are more alive with the ritual, that that it's it's a much more participatory experience. They feel welcomed into my body, into my psyche. They want to work with me. Um versus, and I'm not saying that I don't won't still do this, but taking a couple of mushrooms at a festival and going enjoying some music and laughing with yeah. my friends, right? That's like then the mushrooms are participating with me in a very, very different way. They're not like we are welcomed as teachers they're like all right yeah we're joking like let's juggle some shit and put some funny hats on and um so it it the ritual i think calls different parts of the spirits of these chemicals into into being and it's just a choice of whether you want that full participation or not i don't think that one is better or worse it's just what you're after
0: Yep. Absolutely. That's how I see it too. I mean, I've definitely had my handful of times that I went to a party and just dropped like half a tab or a full tab of acid having already done it prior. So I know exactly what's going to happen. So I'm pretty comfortable with outcomes Or like going to music festivals. Like you had said, that's a great time. I was at a music festival three or four weeks ago on some mushrooms, just having an ecstatic amount of fun. Um, And then, yeah, the rituals, come into play i think when you're really trying to dive deeper like you're saying it's whenever i explain it to people i always try to tell them that the like how you're saying it's not enlightenment i think that that's such a misconception that people have that they're going to take this and all of a sudden the light bulb's going to go off in their mind they're going to like oh my god i know the answers to the cosmos and it's like yeah okay do it two or three more times and i promise you're going to realize that that is not the case um but it's all what you make of it. You can basically just choose your own adventure, you know, and then depending on the doses, that's also going to completely alter it. Um, so yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Um, yeah. Such a fun time. Uh, so getting away from psychedelics uh, well, not even getting away from them. I'm curious what you think the relationship moving forward between religion, psychology, and psychedelics are because from the limited amount of research that I've done into it, and then like reading Carl Jung and a few other people, it's that it seems to me the way forward is the melding of all of these things into creating something new. And that seems like that is going to be the, the answer, that they're not antithesis to each other or opposites, that they're all part of the same Underlying functions of our psyche. Um, so I was curious what what your thoughts are on yeah. on that on the melding of that.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a million a million threads to pull in that. <laughs> um, you know, Jung, Jung talks about the religious function of the psyche, and that that there are these he he determines five basic in psychological instincts. Um, and, and religiosity is one of them, sometimes referred to as, as the need to know oneself. Um, and, I, and he also talks about how when it comes to the big problems in life or the big splits inside of us, our neuroticisms, our anxieties, our depressions, our phobias, the places where we're really disconnected from our essence, um, it's not... Consciousness that heals. It's not awareness that heals. It's the numinous. So it's having that mystical experience to whatever, you know. And that's like a huge spectrum from, from mm-hmm. big to um, small. It's the numinous that heals, and and so this religious function of the psyche, which is longing for that numinosity, um, when it's not met, or Um, given attribution, given space, given safety, curiously explored and allowed, then it does become pathology. Uh, It becomes pain and and cramping and um, hatred and projection. And when you look at the vehemence with which people hate, there is a religiosity to it. There is a godliness to that feeling, and and absolutism. It's, it's, it is, it's godly. The degree to which people believe in their rightness and their, their, their righteousness, that that's a manifestation of maybe more of the shadow side or the darker side of this religious function of the psyche. Right. Um, So there's something to be said for safe and healing experiences of that religiosity which psychedelics can deliver but many things can trance any trance state can right ecstatic dance chanting drumming um silence good good stories good laughter good jokes even right um can can bring us to that state of like ah connection here i am like here's the whole and that's the thing that heals. It's not, oh, I understand this childhood wound and this thing and this trauma response. And all of that's very, very good information and self-awareness is never bad. Um, but the self-awareness alone doesn't heal. It's it's the, it's the religious function in its proper use. The other thing that I'll say about this, the melding of the two um, and Jeffrey Kripel. Who's a professor um, at Rice University? He, he writes very beautifully about um, the emergent reorientation in the West toward mysticism again. Uh, that, that our mystical proclivities kind of fell into the background post-Enlightenment as a result of the scientific revolution. And you know, that science and God split. Um, which was absolutely necessary for for the development of so many different technological and scientific advancements. Um, And now we're in this phase where the rationality and the scientific mindset alone does not suffice. So we need to, to, I don't wanna say go back because we're moving forward, but we need to kind of remember um, that more irrational or mystical element and And the doing of that is causing a paradigm shift. Um, And we are seeing that in psychology and in most scientific endeavors that that there is this clash now between like the purely positivistic mentality that says, if I can't prove it with data and numbers, then it doesn't exist. And this more holistically oriented um frame which understands i would say i mean consciousness studies is a really good example of this right that like behaviorists say consciousness is a product of the brain and and really what anybody with psychedelic experience knows and what we're also seeing in high scientific fields of like physics and psychology and um is that things are just conscious cells are just conscious atoms are just conscious they're they're not self-conscious but but they they do have an intelligence right so this isn't a product of the brain it's innate it's fundamental uh and of course the study of that is impossible this is the hard problem of of consciousness right that we the second you go in and try and cut something apart and and divide it and and look at it you're you've already done the thing which won't allow you to study it holistically. So it's an impossible problem. Um, But we're we're now more sensitive to, okay, this is a problem that that is insurmountable, um, but we, we do have subjective experience to kind of bypass it a little bit, that people can have a subjective experience of a mystical reality. And, and we know that that subjective experience is true for them, which is really all that matters, right?
0: Mm-hmm. That's how I have explained it to people is that perception is reality. So what does it matter if what you're perceiving is a complete figment of your imagination, if it's helping you experience life on a deeper and richer level, then perceive Absolutely. what you want to perceive. As long as you're not going out and aggressing or committing you know, heinous acts in lieu of that, then... What does it matter what you believe in? If you want to believe in Odin or an owl god or Jesus Christ, I don't care as long as you're a good person. Um
1: and I haven't so read Jeffrey. Do do commit heinous acts yep. based on their perceptions. Arguably that's the only thing that they're basing yep. their their actions on, right? So um yeah, it really is everything that you can perceive an enemy and make an enemy through your perception and then kill that person. Hundred percent.
0: Absolutely. I mean, we see that every day, even in America right now. You saw it specifically with roe v. Wade, uh, with that being overturned, the the utter belief in one side or the other leading to the willingness to commit acts of violence on each other, whichever side you're on, it doesn't matter. Both both sides have done it. Um that's it's really fascinating. And I mean, that's the history of religion, I would say, is is murder on massive, massive scales in the name of a God that's supposed to be a God of love and care and, you know, harmonizing with your neighbors. Um, I was going to say, I haven't read Jeffrey Cripple yet, uh, but he is, listening to him speak was the first time I was introduced to the idea of the religion of no religion. And I thought that was very profound. And that's also what I found reading Carl Jung's work was that it was, it I was understanding the psychological concepts he was laying forward, but the whole time I was reading it, I just felt like I was reading him talk purely about metaphysical concepts. And based on my own experiences, I was like, yeah, this is absolutely correct. Like I felt these entities and, and what exactly he is talking about. Um, So I personally have a belief in that, but that was what originally, sent me to bring that topic up was uh was the idea of the religion of no religion and then creating something moving forward that tries to embody that that we can all agree on and hopefully gives us a metaphysical meaning or fulfillment in life that is not as dogmatic per se as christianity or judaism muslim whatever the case is uh because they're also tainted, you know, I think a a huge topic of conversation in the Western world right now is the idea of generational trauma, or the passing down of wrongs. Um, And I think religion definitely falls into that, just like the state does, um, or all these massive institutions of power, basically. Um, So that's something I've been really interested in is, is what's going to be made moving forward to try to break those cycles of hatred and create something that allows people to experience life on their own terms and gives them less of an excuse to then turn that into dogmatic zealotry that
1: they can turn on each other. You know, I, I, I feel, um, the thing that, happened for me obviously not for me because i wasn't there but like in in the enlightenment the, the enlightenment turn and 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 the god is dead experience i think what happened for human beings who for so long had felt safe in the hands of god um and if not safe at least uh, at least when the unsafe things happened they could Kind of give it up to god
0: mm-hmm. and there was
1: there was a sense of there's somebody in the driver's seat i think what happened when when god was murdered is that um people went into an extreme existential fear and what do we do when we're really afraid we get controlling and aggressive and needy and greedy and and very egocentric right so Without a cultural container to hold the divine, everybody needed to become this hyper individual that I take care of me and mine. And that's capitalism in a nutshell. Right. And and of course, that's worth killing over. Of course, that's worth going to war over. That's that's survival instinct 101. So I don't think it's been it's been incorrect of kind of the collective nervous system to respond in this hyper individualized way to the loss of God. That's what you do. If you're abandoned by a parent, you freak the fuck out and you figure out how to deal with your life. Like, and you become the, you become the boss of your fucking reality. Right. And, and if that means that you need to step on a few people in the process, go for it. You have your justification and it's, and it's kind of a righteous justification. The reemergence of psychedelics and and spirituality and culture and the religion of no religion, I think it gives the collective a moment to exhale of like, oh, I'm not actually alone. I don't need to control every little thing in my environment. I don't need to hoard resources and time and um, money to take care of things because maybe things just can be taken care of right like that's that's sort of the soft side of religion is that like you will be taken care of you are loved you are whole and perfect in the eyes of god right and so neumann eric neumann who's who's probably my favorite thinker ever um in his book origins and history of consciousness he He talks about this moment in in the collective development when when myths started to emerge about the separation from the world parents so previous to these myths it was it was the the creation myth and for for eons it was just creation myths and then at some point there was the birth of the child and then that child needs to separate from the world parents so this God is dead enlightenment thing. That's essentially us separating from the world parents, right? That's us saying no more, dad. Um, I don't, I don't want what you're selling and that's necessary. It's a necessary developmental phase, uh, to go out on your own, to quest, to make your thing, to sell your wares, to, to figure out who you are absolutely necessary. But when the stance becomes um, so dominated by fear that, that you're no longer in the, the developmental trajectory. You're just hoarding. Now you're just staying, you're stagnating and, and like in this miserly way, kind of taking in experience or resources or people, um, then, then you've stalled. Then we're in a state of arrested development and it's time to open to a new, um, way of relating a new way of being. And this is why I think depth psychology is so important because a lot of psychology just deals with kind of fixing the behavior, these behavioral interventions or pharmacological interventions, right. That take away the suffering of this hoarding ego. Um, whereas If we can orient to something that's not about the the dichotomy between suffering and ease, which is just an ego dichotomy, right? Like the ego is the one that says suffering bad, uh, ease good. But if we can orient to something more than that, that's about the evolution of your being and the evolution of beings in general... Then suffering serves a higher purpose, and that's noble. That's a good thing, uh, and that's the phase that I think collectively we're quite stuck in. We're we're in this what Neumann refer, refers to as the old ethic. There's good behavior and bad behavior, and good experiences and bad bad experiences, and and we try and do away with bad and and get more of the good. But in order to get more of the good, I have to now conform, become perfect, become unsinning. Um, to get the good, the ultimate boon of, of the good side, but that disavows this whole other part of life, um, which is equally, if not more important to our evolutionary journey. And that's the religious perspective. I think that can be integrated and the depth psychology perspective that can be integrated that sometimes our, our pain is so necessary and, and highly valuable. I don't know anybody that, has a meaningful life that hasn't suffered greatly for it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that that uh, the the lack of nuance in good and evil is definitely a a leftover blight from the Judeo-Christian control of of Western society. Um, whenever God was made perfect it then gave humanity, specifically Western societies, a goal that was completely unattainable for them to ever get to because perfection is unattainable in any sense of the word, um, or at least in any sense that we can perceive it to be um,
1: yeah, suffering. Great line. He says, it it, it. it. the time has come to sacrifice the ideal of perfection at the altar of wholeness. And I just find that to be so profound and, and true. And every time I say it out loud, it it just, it breaks my heart open Um, because it means that we're no longer making a devil out of life, right? That like in God being perfect, it means because nature is compensatory and, and, tends towards homeostasis. If there's, if there's a bright, bright, perfect thing, there has to be a dark, dark, imperfect thing, right? The creation of Christ necessitates the creation of the antichrist. So if, if I'm striving for perfection, I'm always on some level creating a devil within me. But if instead I'm striving for wholeness, then it's ah, Devil's got a seat at the table. Here's this impulse that I don't know how to integrate yet, but I'm, I wonder I'm curious about it. Not fuck you, go away. Right. Yeah,
0: absolutely. That was something that reading Carl Jung coming with as well was the idea of the shadow of, of not repressing those darker aspects of yourself, but embracing them, accepting them while not allowing them to control you, your actions or your persona. Um, and then the wholeness concept is, is so key. I originally was really into Buddhism um and Taoism because of the concept of the yin and yang of achieving this equilibrium. And then when I was introduced to the concepts of the masculine and feminine, that just completely changed the way that I view myself and view the world. Um, because I lived in such deep embrace of not only the shadow warrior, but just hyper masculinity that whenever I even began to integrate a fraction of my own feminine back into my life, it was just instantaneous that I felt things on a deeper level. My relationships got better. My relationship with myself got better because I created empathy for myself. Um, And that was, that's something that I strive for every day is to try to live that wholeness concept of the masculine and feminine within myself. Um, And I think that that's, Also, something that would greatly benefit society and especially our country right now um, is that we have such a non dualistic approach to the way that we interact with each other society the world basically everything our entire construct of reality as a communal whole is so hyper masculine that again you you see the violence as being the quickest answer to turn to in pretty much all of our relationships with anyone um so i think that that the coming back of of the the feminine and to not only yourself as an individual but as a culture re-embracing those aspects are going to be so crucial moving forward to actually having a healthy society Mm -hmm.
1: yeah i I totally agree and i'm happy for you that you've had that had that insight. I think, you know, one of the ways that I see this showing up um, and you know, I work I work with couples and also just in being a human, um, and and relating to men and women, but men. Um, this idea of wholeness and good and bad, and like that, that kind of old ethic paradigm, it shows up so much in conversation of well, I didn't intend to. I didn't mean to hurt you. That wasn't my intention, right? As if, and this is this is like a perfect breakdown of that ego ideal of perfection. I intended to be perfect for you. And I failed, so that's not my fault because I intended to be perfect. I'm ascribing so much value to the idea of who I could have been or who I meant to be that I can't actually feel in that feminine place, that receptive place, ah, there's hurt here. There's repair that needs to happen, which is so much more important than whether or not I intended to cause the hurt, right? And it's only that feminine place of of co-regulation and co-creation and relatedness to the other person that says, it's okay that I've hurt you. It's okay with me and my ego projection of myself that I've hurt you. I don't need to repaint myself as a better person than I am. I can just be in the space of shit. That Yeah, that must have really hurt. I imagine like that empathic thing. I imagine... That when I said that, it did this for you, right? Giving giving that empathy instead of wait, wait, well, wait, no, no, no. Please see me as this other, this this ego ideal of myself that I really need you to see me as because I can't stand that I'm not that. So it shows up even in our smallest interactions and our smallest language language games that we play. Like I need to be perfect. You need to see me as perfect. And if you don't, I'm actually angry and defensive about it. No, no, no. I just need. I just need the the hurt to be allowed. Right. And, and speaking of the feminine, like that's arguably all the earth needs from us too. talking about like the, the, the great mother here, like she doesn't need somebody to stand up and say, Oh, we didn't mean to. It's too late for that. Once the damage is done, it's, ah, okay, there's damage. Can I be related enough? and in my feminine receptivity enough in my empathic self enough to give a shit to care yeah i had a friend ask me the other night um why how we got here in in the ecological crisis that we're in and in the in the kind of i would say sociopathic <laughs> crisis that we're in um and and it It occurred to me, and I hadn't, I hadn't quite formulated this thought before, but it occurred to me that it's not an absence of goodwill. It's not an absence of that perfect ego ideal of, of good intentions, right? We have all of the good intentions all of the time. Most of us, 1% of the population are, are too far gone to, to, to recognize good intentions in themselves. That's a very, very, very small minority. Um, even the people that are that are doing evil in the world are doing it from from their perspective a good intention, uh, so it's not an absence of good intentions of that perfect ego ideal. It's actually an absence of the ability to feel one's impact, and we're not actually learned to feel. It's not safe to feel. The feminine has not been given space to say "ouch" or "my bad." Can you help me learn to do this better? It's not safe to 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 have that humble ask of like, I made a mistake because I didn't know, can, can I learn better now? Right. We're, we're, we're so mired in shame at not being perfect that we can't grow together, which is a hundred percent the absence of the feminine or, you know, in, in Jungian speak, the preponderance of a too intense, kind of dark mother aspect. This sort of critical, judging, narcissistic energy that like sucks all of one's ability to learn and grow and feel comfortable in their own body. It just like comes and it's like, nope, okay, I made a mistake. I fucked up, freeze. Just stay frozen. If I don't move, she can't see me, right? Yeah, the- the, the, Tyrannic source Rex of our consciousness, just so.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, the good intentions thing, I think, is so important because you see that so often in our society, on the colloquial left and right, that they're all operating from a place of good intentions, but nothing that they're doing is bringing us back to a harmonious balance with each other. I'm curious, do you look at society or civilization or the government the same way that you would look at an individual. So like, yeah, I see that. I see our, our society right now as just purely a projection of our collective unconscious being so out of balance. Like every, when I, so like say when I read King, Warrior, Magician, Lover, I was like, okay, this is an awesome book. I can take these and apply them to myself and make sense of things. And then I took those same concepts and I looked at our society as a whole. And I was like, oh shit, this is the, they're the exact same correlations. Like these are direct projections of the imbalance in all of our own individual psyches that are creating this massive fucked up society right now. Um,
1: I mean, that's, that's, that is just, that's possession of an archetype by an archetype, right? That like, and I think this is another fallacy of of egocentricity. If I'm operating from a purely ego place or a, an unrelativized ego, as in I haven't had an experience of my ego not being central to my to my psyche, um, then I don't understand that the experience that I'm having is not unique. that that all people that come from, an absent father and a narcissistic mother or an abusive father and an alcoholic mother or a like twin, uh, who was, you know, straight a student and, and you were kind of always in the shadow, like that these constantly archetypes, of course, every archetype shows up in us uniquely, but the energy behind it is unchanging. It creates a psychic structure that, that is, not you need every daughter of an absent father has something in common with every other daughter and not just biographically she acts the same way that won't appear on the surface but inside of herself she's got the same voice and i see this with clients like it's pretty incredible actually sometimes especially with couples i'll hear one one couple's story their relationship history their parental history and i'll be able to say oh your wife must have had x y and z happen to her in her childhood and it's just like and i'm even surprised I'm like, how the fuck do i know that and it's not intuitive <laughs> it's it's that's the only way that these archetypes could actually possibly manifest in a relationship is if she was bringing this list of truly archetypal experiences incest or uh child of an addict or codependent mother or whatever it is right archetypes and so when it comes to the collective unconscious this this manifestation of the sort of shadow masculine traits the shadow warrior or the tyrant or um the jilted lover uh what people as their little individual selves are failing to recognize is that like that's just what happens in this climate, that's just what happens if you don't have possession of your own archetypes, right? Jung says that when it comes to complexes, until you realize you've got them, they have you. And that's 100% what's happening in the world. People don't realize that they're being had.
0: Yeah, damn, drop that knowledge. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. That's that was something that I I can have come to realize is that collectivism will always fail without strong individuals. So you have to create a strong individual to have a strong collective. And if if you're not creating that within your community, then your community is going to be bound for failure, I think. I also think it's really interesting, and this is something I kind of thought about uh, listening to Jordan Peterson. Talk about how important the family structure is, and then looking at the state and then the correlation that was made between state workers and, say, a grandma or something like that, where they're trying to create state-sponsored replacements for the absence of these elders within your own family to help guide you and give you the knowledge forward. Mm -hmm. and I think that's bound to fail, Um, but I I thought it was a a very fascinating correlation um, to think about it that way, is that these would not be necessary if we as individuals took more responsibility for our lives and then for our families and created ourselves better so that we create our families better, so that we create our community better, and then in turn, mass civilization becomes better. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's, when 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 it talks of when we talk about society and and governmental intervention or support like we're really really in the realm here of of our parental complexes right and our 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 broken childhoods that in a perfect world childhood is an opportunity for you to increasingly test the the limitations of your own being that you learn autonomy and self-reliance um but most of us are not given that opportunity we're either too fenced in or we're too abandoned uh so so overwhelm or abandonment right parents are either too protective and too controlling or they're completely not there so we don't actually have anything to to test there's it's okay i guess i'm alone in the world and so true autonomy never develops right um and then we see this in our governmental systems, broad brushstrokes here, but we could say that society yeah. is, is, is the father, right? Earth is the mother and society is the father. or culture is the father, right? So, so we're now, because we don't have that inner compass that ought to have developed, we're, we're looking to the systems, to the religions, the dogmas, the society systems, societal systems, and saying, father me, like please, Daddy, I I need help. Um, which is genuine. That's true. We do need fucking help. Yeah. But but <laughs> we we've created a, a father out of out of nothing, out of like a compilation of human beings that can't even talk to each other and have no emotional intelligence. And now we're saying, you're gonna fix me, you're gonna save me. Um, because that's what a father should do: provide the protection and the security and the safety for us to fully self-actualize. Um, so we're expecting that from our daddy, uh, which is an okay expectation. It's never going to happen, though—at least not, not the way that things are right now. Um, and and the projection onto society that it do that for us, I think, is is creating a much more impossible circumstance because society is actually trying to meet that expectation without realizing um, how impossible that is. And so everyone's disappointed. Everything is a failure. Nothing, nothing works uh, because you can't father 8 billion people.
0: (laughs) Yeah. That's a fact. Meanwhile, we've cut off our connection to the great mother or just, Look at it like it's not important whatsoever, you know. And that's not to say that we have to live purely like cavemen, but certainly have reverence for the earth and continue to progress ourselves in technology to where we can live a more harmonious balance with her. Because this is a cradle of life, and you know, if you light your cradle on fire, there's there's no cradle to sleep in, <laughs> and you know, that's just how it goes. That um,
1: that to me is just indicative of how um, absent our our sense of self is because at this point of of ecological disaster the survival instinct should have kicked in we should be trying to save ourselves like that we're not that we're still choosing greed and this sort of faustian bargain for more progress more knowledge more 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 deal with the devil tells me that uh, there's no there there in most beings now like that connection to self which is the mother archetype right that is the mother complex how you relate to yourself how you take care of your own physical needs and the light the cycle of life and death in which you are a part is your mother not your actual mother your inner mother um that we don't have a, an awareness of that that has um, kicked in to save our asses at this point is a it's hatred of the mother like I'm, I'm sure that on a very very deep level this is just deep hatred of the feminine um and and b like it's it's such a rationalization it's such a heady thing it's such a masculine thing to have no body instinct to have no survival instinct uh it's, it's absurd. And, and yeah, just, like I said, very indicative of how far, um, how huge that chasm is.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yep, absolutely. I think that we also operate out of a origin point of really pure pessimism. I think that that's why things like Western reductionism and psychologists like Freud are so big in our society, because it is a It's a positive feedback loop that creates negativity. So you operate out of a baseline of pessimism before you even begin to make decisions because of how we're brought up as a culture um, and how we're taught from parents, public schools, whatever the case is, is that you automatically assume the worst in people or the worst in humanity, the worst in nature, whatever the case is, before ever actually giving anything a chance. Um, And I think that that's, it it, it's so detrimental um
1: I mean there's two things in that right there's the projection of the shadow I can't tolerate the worst in myself so I must see it in others and that is a fundamental one-to-one ratio that if I cannot contain or tolerate something about myself I see it in the mirror of reality as as an other um shit what was the other thing I was going to say can't
0: remember it's all right just boomerang it out into the universe it'll come back i do it all the time i'll be mid-conversation completely forget something i just i just throw it out into the universe so like what are you doing i'm like bro i just boomerang that idea i'm telling you in like 30 minutes it's gonna come back around and just smack me (laughs) but yeah that was that was something that i uh I really started to try to to fix within myself is is operating on that baseline of of pessimism. Mm-hmm. Um that's why I think that when I mentioned earlier that I thought when I was reading Carl Jung I was reading less about psychology and more about metaphysics is because it would just seemed like it was it was giving you a a baseline to look at the world out of such a more optimistic view that you can create Again, like I was saying, empathy for yourself, but just a baseline of optimism to look at yourself that in turn projects out onto the world. That's so much healthier to operate out of. If you just give people the benefit of the doubt, you know, most of the time they're probably going to live up to your expectations. I found that. I found that most of the time when I give people the benefit of the doubt, they might be a little surprised at first. Like, say, if you're giving trust to a stranger or something, they might be a little taken back because they're not used to that. But more often than not, they're going to actually fulfill the idea of, of
1: optimism that you have in mind. Um, Well, see, so, so there's, I mean, there's something back to, back to this idea of mother and kind of the cultural mother or inner mother. The very first developmental task that we have is to develop basic trust with our caregiver. Um, And, and in the absence of a space in which that's available to us, uh, we go into fear. My needs will never be met. This will never work out. So, basic trust and and what you're deeming pessimism, these are these are like fundamental, you know, zero to six months old developmental tasks. Um, so, if we're in an environment that already on the unconscious level is steeped in that anxiety, that fear of life, that mistrust. Even if you have a lovely relationship to your primary caregiver, you're picking up on all of the unspoken stuff. You're picking up on the culture. You're picking up on mistrust. So it's very, very hard to actually get that basic task met. Um, And I see this so often with clients and so often in journey work that you have to regress to that place when the trust was uh, wounded. And actually kind of return to that with adult consciousness and, and form different experiences, form different neural connections um, that, that show you, oh, I, I can trust. And it's not that you're trusting a stranger now necessarily, it's that you're trusting the life inside of them. That's the trust that we're talking about. It's not an individual. It's the thing inside you that makes you alive. That's what I want to trust. And that's the mother, right? It's life. If I can trust her in her movement through me, in her movement through the world, um, and I have a strong intuition because I trust her, then I'm safe. I don't need to go into that fear response, that pessimism, that mistrust, because I, I, I'm, I'm good. I've, I've got my yeah. homing voice, right? The other thing that I wanted to say, I did remember it. Um, this you said something about leaving things up to chance and i think you know peterson writes a lot about chaos and order as a fundamental polarity he's obviously not the first one but that's another way of talking about masculine feminine right and and when we put our trust in the feminine there is a high degree of chaos of chance of like whatever will be will be like time will tell right uh and when we project onto chaos that it's disordered and um negatively unpredictable or unpredictability becomes a, a negative thing uh uncontrollable too wild i mean all of those these things are true about chaos but when there's this projection that that then makes it evil that then makes it wrong this fear of the feminine or the the hatred of mother or whatever however we want to talk about it then i can't actually be in that trusting place of like the chaos will provide and that's what synchronicity is right that the the meaningful things will find me because that's what, that's what meaning is. That's what the co-emergence and the a causal relationship of matter mother is is that. All right. Yeah. Chaos principle, the right shit's going to come at the right time. And I can trust that even if I don't see it now with my rational order, my logic, my lists, my plans. Um, and there's nothing wrong with plans. Obviously there's nothing wrong with goal setting or logic or ordering one's life. But when we become one-sided in that so much so that we fear and reject the other side, um, then it is really impossible to kind of trust in chance and trust in the rightness of life, that the the right things will happen at the right time. That's a big leap for the like order only kind of mindset.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The spontaneity of life is, I mean, it's beautiful. That's, it's like when I, when I tell people that I believe in the divine or the cosmos, or I talk about God, that's kind of what I'm talking about is that there's a flow of life, a masculine and feminine flow throughout our universe that you can tap into and it's going to provide. It is like you were saying, it's that synchronicity. It's, it's giving up control to a degree and putting faith in something that you can never prove to exist and understanding that it is going to provide for you it might not seem like it's going to be in a positive manner at some points there are going to be points in your life where you might think that you're in hell you know i'm i'm sure you've definitely experienced it i've experienced it anyone i think that has gone through this journey has experienced it and more often than not you're going to come out of that if you take the opportunity to harness what it's telling you and do the work to put your life back on a correct path forward, a correct, you know, um, you're, you're going to be, you're going to be so much better in the long run than if you shut yourself off to, to those possibilities and to what the cosmos is telling you to what that feminine energy, that, that chaos is trying to bring into your life. Um, I like the analogies of, of you know, the universe is feminine and the earth is feminine and then humanity as being the masculine because we bring a certain level of order to our perceived reality, our plane of existence, so that we can operate in a more comfortable manner and interact with each other. But that does not mean that we have control over life. If anything, it is far from that. We have absolutely zero control. We are on a floating rock hurtling through space at whatever many miles an hour. And at any second, a comet could hit us and completely wipe us out. You know, and that's if we don't kill each other first. You know, if that's not chaos, then I don't know what is, you know, and it's like you just you accept that you give yourself into that and you you understand that things are going to work out things are going to work out as long as you receive what the universe is giving you and then you try to operate out of a place of positivity then it's you're eventually going to be in a better place
1: i think yes and like the 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 urge to alleviate suffering while in the midst of it I just, I think that that's a pretty misguided urge. Obviously it's very animal to, to, you know, lean towards pleasure and avoid pain. Um, But as anybody who's been in an ayahuasca experience knows, got to go through the portal of pain and, and the pain is what cleanses you. That is what you purge when you're in that space. You're not purging after ecstasis. You're purging because Here's my history of addiction, or here's my trauma, or here's my deep fear. Um, that's what gets cleansed. So it's these experiences of pain that like clean the slate. And to try and avoid them means being toxified by them. It means that they continue festering there. So we need these painful experiences, and the avoidance of suffering again, very understandable, but but not our highest urge i think um and it is <laughs> it, the 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 story of jesus at at gethsemane comes to mind you know when he's when he's going to be um crucified and and he has a chat with dad like hey can you can you make this not happen actually um it'd be really nice if i didn't have to die today don't really want to have to go through the humiliation, the suffering of this and his dad's uncharacteristically silent. And it's in that moment that that Christ comes to in his own heart if thy will be done. And that's the reverence for life. It's not let me strive to find the good in this or put a positive spin on this or make this better. It's, if this is happening, thy will be done. That's, that's who I am as the servant of life. Uh, And that's, it's, it's, I mean, it's profoundly humbling. It's profoundly heartbreaking and, you know, humbling, which by which I also mean humiliating. Um, And it's no small task. You know, I, I, I work with clients a lot on this relationship. What's your relationship to to chaos and order? Um, Because what we project on these invisible, but very, very influential things is so telling. Ah, if I, if I fear all chaos and over ascribe to order, okay, then we've got OCD, we've got anxiety disorders, we've got panic disorder, right? Um, If I, if I'm actually quite at home in the chaos and I, and I tend to put negative projections on the order, uh, all right. So we've got depression, we've got bipolar, we've got ADHD, right? Um, so the psyches form based on these projections and, and you can't alleviate those symptoms fundamentally without the person understanding, oh, I need to take a stance and understand my relationship to these archetypal energies. I need to understand what I have come to know about chaos. And is that actually true? Is she actually this wild beast that's going to devour me? Huh? Nope. That's my projection. Okay. Interesting. Maybe I can relate to her in a new way now. Um, There's a Camille Paglia uh, I'm a huge fan of her and that get, that loses me a lot of points in feminist circles, but t- to your point of the universe being feminine and humans being masculine and, and Neumann writes about this too, that, that, the, 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 the development of ego consciousness is masculine and the instinctual body is feminine. Right. And, and that we both contain or we contain both of these poles, but Paglia makes this really wonderful point that I that I turn over in my mind at least once a day. Um, she talks about how society is built on vision, that literal vision, like the seeing of aesthetic. So now we're shaping nature to make it more appealing to us. We're shaping Our bodies and our ways of being, we're shaping hierarchical structures and buildings and works of art based on an aesthetic that's vision-based, right? And and again, this is both eyesight and also just like vision, like the visionary being and the ability to see in a linear way forward and that there's something inherently masculine about that, that, that taking the raw material and shaping it. Shaping the natural world into something that fits more into society, shaping human instincts and human social dynamics, which are totally chaotic into a hierarchical structure called society. So there is something very masculine about this kind of architect energy and the vision, especially. And the reason that I bring it to the eyes is because I think that there's this very, very cool thing that if we tap into that on an individual level, like what I'm doing when I'm looking at something versus what I'm doing when I'm feeling something inside. And it and it, that's exactly the dichotomy that we're that we're talking about here. And most people are going to be dominated in one that I rely more on what I can see and therefore what I know and how I'm shaping. Versus, okay, I'm not really paying attention to the details of the space around me or the the features on the person, but I, I do have a felt sense of them. Or I do know what this what the vibe is. I know what this atmosphere fear feels like, right? So that's a that's an inner experience. And it's not so much about then creating based on a vision. It's like moving through things from a feeling. And again, like masculine, feminine, right? Like the orientation to life is entirely broken down into, into these two ways of being, and we can be pathologized or we can have pathology and symptoms in either, in either direction. But so often I see with men in particular, which I'm finding very interesting these days, um, that (laughs) the sense of like, if the world were different, then I'd be happy. If society wasn't like this, if I didn't have to have a job, if I didn't have to X, Y, Z, if women didn't treat me like this, and of course, women have this, have this too, then I'd be happy. I, if if i could shape things into the way that i need them to be then my insides would be all right. so there's the breakdown right of the inner and the outer world with that instead of how do i get my insides right with everything the way that it is and that's a that's a very i almost want to say feminine orientation of like this is the way that things are and now i need to do the thing of what does that mean for me? How do I make sense of that? Instead of I'm going to hyper control and make my reality the way that I see it in my vision.
0: I just you want said to that mean, the people. Sorry. <laughs> no, I, it's all right. I loved it. I was I was tracking her, trying to track as much as I could. Um, that's interesting. Would you say that those people are operating out of child psychology still? The people who who think that. Well, if I could just have this or have that, my life would be great. And not understanding that to a degree, to a massive degree, I would say the the status of their life is directly within their control. Like they, their, their place, whatever the case is, is a reflection of the decisions that they've made in their life. And it's just them not wanting to be willing to take responsibility for for their actions and their path through life. And that's not to say that people don't start off lower or higher in the socioeconomic ladder, but you can definitely progress yourself and not necessarily in the monetary sense either, just as a whole, as an individual, you can progress yourself. Even if you don't have a lot of money, you can be super, super happy. You, know, you can live a beautiful life without having a million dollars um so I was curious if 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 that's what you think is happening is that they're they're still operating from a from a childlike sense of psychology.
1: I'm hesitant to to fully agree to that. what I will say is that um it's it is coming from a wound that happened in childhood. It is coming from a place where they weren't able to um, feel safe, loved, have their needs met, um, in, in their formative years. And so now there's a sense of, yeah, again, kind of needing that wound to be reconciled by the parental structures that are society and the planet by mother and father. And so there's this, um, Fuck you, you hurt me. I don't want to play by your rules, kind of feeling. That's really about dad or mom. It's really, why didn't you love me? Where were you? This hurts. Like that's the fundamental feeling there, but it it shows up as I need the world to be different. If the world were different, then I'd be okay. I mean, what I really hear in that is I, I need my family structure to have been different so that I could have gotten my needs met. Um because we all know even if there's not overt trauma or anything that we can point to, we all know when something's missing. Like we all know what empty feels like or what hollow feels like where there ought to have been life. So we know when something's missing, even if we can't say I'm pissed because, you know, he wasn't there or she wasn't there, or she was there in the wrong way because it wasn't overt. It's, it's just this kind of core soul knowing of where where was everybody? Why didn't anybody notice that I was in so much pain? And so now that manifests as I need to rage at the world, which is a very appropriate response. Like I don't want to pathologize that response or say it's immature. It's not. Um, but the world's never going to respond by, you know, cooing and and calming you down and saying it's all going to be all right. Parents ought to have done that. If they didn't. Now there's an emptiness there, and it's. I think that's the taking responsibility um, part. That's that's very hard. Uh, I will I will hold lightly the fact that I have been wounded and feel bereft, and that is just part of me.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and even just coming to that realization of of the pain and trauma left over from a parent or an absentee parent is so overwhelming. I mean, I had to deal with that like my biological father was a drug addict and was in and out of my life and stuff like that. Luckily, I had a stepdad who became my father and helped guide me along the path, but my biological father ended up killing himself and to this day it's so it just it brings your blood to a boil that I can't even tell him like fuck you, you know. Um so yeah, I definitely agree with what you're saying. Like that, that deep-seated trauma is, is very overwhelming. Um thank you. And oh yeah, nah, no worries. I mean, I've I've come to terms with it now as best that I can, you know, through a lot of a lot of psychedelic exploration and then my own spiritual journey. Um, but that realization also helped open me up to that path like realizing how heavily that that wound affected me and affected my interaction with the world and it affected my my desire to achieve this image of what it meant to be a man because i thought that if i could become a man he might not love me but he would at least respect me you know and that drove me down a dark path and i just refused to even reconcile those emotions because i was like well i'm better than this and i i don't feel anything towards him you know for the longest time that's what i operate out of i was like well i have no emotions towards him he's dead to me um and i definitely don't think that's the case i think that everyone has deep-seated emotions towards their parents regardless of your relationship with them so you have to deal with that to move forward
1: You do have to deal with it. And I, I mean, I'll also say back to just trusting the timing of things. Like there's a reason that we don't deal with that in the moment when we're three or seven or 13, there's a very good reason that we do not feel those feelings. Um, Like psychological defenses are, are crafty and tedious sometimes and, and really unnecessary after a while and probably become maladaptive. But in that moment, the defense of I feel nothing to this person, he's dead to me, super valid, super necessary. Because if you were to actually feel the devastation of that in your tiny little body with zero sense-making skills, nope, that's it. KO, out. There's nothing left for you. So like the, the ability to then as an adult say I have the inner resources to go and address this now like that's the phase that's the that's the mature developmental task of like okay I've I actually feel stable enough in myself in the world that I can say ah this thing that I didn't feel back then I'm ready now and I think I think that this is a really wonderful way that the unconscious works through us is that show, um, I'll say orchestrate experiences in our life synchronistically so that we can recapitulate these wounds once, once we're ready. Um, and this is, this is Jung's idea that until you make the unconscious conscious, it directs your life and you call it fate, right? That there is this part of us that does want to heal this past stuff. So it, makes situations happen where we can recapitulate the feeling. This is like, you know, you date unavailable men because you had an absent father kind of thing. And and every time that he becomes unavailable, your heart closes up or breaks or you freak out or you go into chaos or whatever it is. And it's like, oh, that response, that's the response that my five-year-old body wanted to have. But I obviously couldn't have it then because it would have killed me. So the psyche's trying to give you an experience to to actually go back to that place of like, I can take care of you now. I can deal with this now. We can change this pattern now with consciousness, with maturity. Um, And until we do that, they keep happening. It keeps fucking showing up. Like, ah, that again, cool. Guess I'm not done with that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely synchronicity is such a crazy thing. I experienced that in my life so heavily to put me on this journey um, to the point where it was just completely impossible to even begin to rationalize everything that happened in a singular moment in time where it was like, all right, once you experience that, I feel like it's hard to not believe in something higher than yourself or some higher flow of energy. Um, and then, yeah, absolutely. like you're saying, having the psychological tools to to cope with that or to seek out help with that is so crucial. I mean, as a 24, 23-year-old man, when this was initially happening to me, um, I mean, that shit broke me as an adult. You know, I, I couldn't even imagine as, you know, a 12-year-old child trying to cope with that. It's It's impossible. You don't have the psychological capacity to really sit back and and integrate what's going on without it just completely breaking you down um
1: and i I really i really feel that some of these like larger more archetypal things death of a parent absent parent drug addicted parent like um death of a friend whatever like it's not all parent related anyway that it's almost not I don't want to say not possible, but like I would almost not advise even trying to integrate it. It's just how do I choose to relate to this? Because the relate relating to something means I'm conscious of it, right? I'm facing it. It's in front of me. I could even hold it. I can touch it. I can be touched by it. There's a, there's a there's a feedback and a receptivity that I I, I lost a friend to suicide. There's, there is no version of reality in which I integrate that grief in which I ever, in which I ever think it was, it was a good thing. It was an okay thing that happened. I'm never going to come to some sort of transcendent mysticism around it, but I can relate to that as like, she meant the fucking world to me. And that I don't know the, the, the relating to it feels much more loving to me than the, like, I need to integrate this darkness into me and into my understanding of human beings so that I can make it go away. It's like, no, no, no. I, 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 I just want, I just want consciousness of this that. And I I mean, I see, I can say this with addiction too, that, um, I, I don't know that there's ever, like, I, I've struggled with addiction in my past. I've gone I've gone through some pretty, down some pretty dark roads with that. Um, and I don't think that there's ever going to be a time in me that, that I am not aware that there is a hungry ghost that will every once in a while demonically possess me, and it will require more, no matter the cost. And that's just my addiction demon. I don't know that I'm ever going to integrate that because the, the origin of it is well, well, well older than me. It is not biologically based. It has very little to do with my actual life experiences. It is just something that I am picking up from, from the collective. And of course there are biological reasons or biographical reasons that, that it emerged in me as everything's gene environment interaction, but, um, So now my job is not to say, okay, let me let me take this demon and and integrate it into me and like become more whole in my personality. It's no, here's my demon. I see it. I can relate to it. Some days I can feed it. Some days I can I can pat it on the head and say kind words to it. Some days I might feel angry towards it. Some days I might wish that it wasn't there, but there's always a relationship in that. I'm always conscious to it. It's always in front of me. So I'm I'm like very pro-integration, and I also find more and more that with these bigger things, the separation is actually really crucial. Um, because if I was to try and integrate that, it would become me. That's, I mean, that's what happened. It's It's so much bigger than me, right? Yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely. Yeah, thank you for that and then yeah i i definitely agree i definitely agree with everything you just said and uh i think maybe it's even less about pure integration as it is just being able to recognize what is what it is you're interacting with and then recognize it when you're projecting it onto others to help you coordinate your way through life Mm
1: -hmm. yeah for sure and and yeah i mean when it comes to like repressed anger at your father for example that that does if you're not conscious of the feelings that does turn into hatred for men or a hatred of authority um a need to dominate weaker beings uh say he was a drug addict, so okay, he was courting chaos. There's now a deep fear of the chaos. There's anger at the chaos, but none of this is conscious, right? So it will emerge in in projections and behavioral, inexplicable behaviors, things that feel out of your control. But in in making those feelings conscious, ah, okay, I wasn't actually angry at that situation. I was angry at the chaos in that situation because the chaos in that situation reminds me of when my dad used to get high and that was really fucking scary. Okay. Got it. It's not inherent to the chaos. It's him or whatever. Right. Yeah, absolutely. What keeps you optimistic Mackenzie? Oh, I don't know that I am optimistic. Um, Am I optimistic? I really enjoy most things. Um, And that joy is pretty hard won. So I'm not going to give it up easily. Uh, I don't necessarily have faith in humanity. I do. I do trust life. Um, But I wouldn't say I'm optimistic about where we're going or what we're doing. I'm not even very optimistic about psychedelics, to be honest. Like, and that's, that's like my highest Psychedelics are the thing that I ascribe like the most positive projection to. And even that I'm like, eh? <laughs> maybe <laughs> like uh, it's definitely a Hail Mary. Um, but I, you know, I know that they can go just as bad as, as not. Um, and, and prohibitions always around the corner with tyrannical governments and, and, and a, and a tyrant archetype loose in the masses. So I have no reason to be optimistic about them. Um but but I do trust. I do trust that that uh what needs to emerge will and that doesn't necessarily mean that we'll survive it. But we'll at least become conscious of the capacity and the the you know, the dark and light face of God, to put it in Jungian language. That's beautiful.
0: I think that's a good place to end.
1: Great. I
0: it's can't thank enough. you enough for your time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Where can people find you at?
1: Uh, my website, com, Instagram and Twitter, The Ink Shrink. Awesome. Yeah. Mackenzie yeah. Mar, ladies and gentlemen.